uh, to life that would, that, would, that would kind of put aside healthy rhythms of engaging and being productive. But at the same time, he still peppers all through his letter, the Lord is returning, the Lord is returning, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, as if everything that we do in the Christian life needs to be done ever aware Jesus is coming back. The Lord is returning. Uh, Paul compresses a lot into the end of his letter, a lot of lessons, uh, how the church should respond to its leaders. We've talked about that with respect and love. Uh, to one another, especially the weak among us, um, with very appropriate care and patience. Right? We talked about uh, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And to the Lord, um, how we, sh we should respond to the Lord with joy. Daniel brought this out last week, with joy, rejoicing, with prayer in all circumstances, and thanksgiving. And all of this is done in the context of a new spiritual family. Paul says over and over and over again, brothers, brothers, or it could be brothers and sisters, to you as a family, a church family, a new family. I want people who weren't a family and now are a family in Christ Jesus. It's this response to the Lord, uh, his work in us, his work among us, that really dominates Paul's last words. And what's beautiful, I think, in this is that um, every thought points us not to a lifeless religion. There's a lot of lifeless religions out there. Um, even things that pose as Christianity, sometimes it just becomes a lifeless religion, a rote religion. But that's never, that's never what you see in the Bible, lifeless religion. And all of Paul's words continually point us to this active relational engagement with the living God. That's the idea, that through Jesus, you would be walking with God, that you would have a relationship with God. And everything Paul writes points to this in light of his return. Uh, I, I read a short story about the, the theologian Dr. Ironside, and apparently a student once asked him, he said, if you knew God was coming back tonight, what would you do? And he said, well, um, I would have a warm drink, and then I would go to bed. He said, what? What are you talking about? If you knew the Lord was coming back tonight? He said, listen, I, I, I wake up every morning thinking that the Lord could come back today. Why should I change my routine now? <laughs> Let's read. We'll just take these in little snippets. We're starting at verse 20, 20, uh, 19, I'm sorry, 19, and we're just going to read through the end, but we'll do it a couple verses at a time. We'll start with verses 19 through 22. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. Uh, we'll spend just a few more minutes in this than, than the other verses. Um, it seems that uh, the, the, these verses all fall under the same theme, and that has to do with the outworking of Holy Spirit gifts. Specifically here, he refers to prophecy. This idea that when you come to Jesus, you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit supernaturally gives you gifts that you did not have before. Um, 
we can think of this idea it, kind of in two uh, parts, and it seems like Paul does this. One, don't be quick to reject such manifestations of the Spirit. And it seems that some here were doing just that. Uh, the NIV, the New International Version, says do not put out the Spirit's fire. But the idea is stop doing that. It, it seems that that was happening within the church. So part one, don't be quick to reject such manifestations of the Spirit. But two, don't be naive by accepting everything you hear as if it's coming from the Spirit. Okay, so don't reject, but don't be naive. Um, prophecy at its core is to communicate a message of God, to communicate a message of God. Um, and I think we can think of prophecy being manifested in two ways. First, we have what I would call prophecy with a capital P. Okay, that's just my just a simple, uh, you know, second grade way in my brain to think about it. Prophecy with a capital P. Um, and this is what we find in the complete, sufficient, infallible Word of God. Okay? Prophecy with a capital P. Um, it's not to be added to. It's not to be subtracted from. Amen? Not to be added to, not to be subtracted from. Prophecy with a capital P. Second, we have this New Testament spiritual gift of prophecy, um, what I would call prophecy with a small p. Now, this is not to be understood or seen as a new revelation from God that's on par with Scripture, right? This is prophecy with a capital P. What we're talking about there is a spiritual gift of someone being able to receive and communicate by the power of the Holy Spirit a timely word from God that edifies the church. Now, the time of that this letter was written... Uh, to the Thessalonian church, the uh, New Testament scriptures were not nearly complete. So prophecy with a capital P, we could say, is still, was still being revealed as a direct and infallible revelation from God through the apostles, capital A. Um, and that's, again, part of what we've been reading through, through these letters to the church. It's interesting, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says that the words of the Old Testament prophets, so really he's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets, and the words of the New Testament apostles are the foundation on which the church is built. And then he says, with Jesus Christ being the what? Chief cornerstone. Prophecy with a capital P. Now, prophecy in that sense is complete. We have God's complete revelation in the Word of God. It's complete for the age of the church. But this, this spiritual gift of prophecy, small p, um, a, a, pro, a prophecy that must be subservient to the perfect and complete revelation of Scripture, was clearly expected and an active part of the local church experience. Um, it's very, very hard to deny that when you look through the letters to the churches. That someone would be especially gifted with, with, a spiritual, uh, with some spiritual insight, some spiritual wisdom, to communicate a word stimulated by the Holy Spirit that is both sensible 
and well-timed. And the New Testament often speaks of this gift functioning in the gathering as we have this morning, the gathering of believers. You, you can read through 1 Corinthians chapter 14 uh, to see that. And what Paul is doing is here is he's encouraging a healthy response to this spiritual gift in the church. And we could really say all such gifts for that matter, that they wouldn't be stifled. Um, it may have been that there were some misuses of spiritual gifts. In fact, it's very clear again through Paul's writing that that often was a common problem in the New Testament churches, that the spirit, there were spiritual gifts, but yet there were, they were sometimes being, being used in unspiritual ways. And that sometimes blows my mind a little bit that that's possible, but clearly it is. So there may have been some misuses of what was being presented as spiritual gifts. And because of that, some in the church, and this is a little bit of conjecture, some in the church were looking to just put a stop to it. Well, if there's misuses, then, then no more. We're not going to do that anymore. And, and it seems like plain that Paul is saying that is an overreaction. That's an overreaction. Don't throw water on the fire of the Holy Spirit. Don't reject or disapprove of those who are looking to communicate a message from the Lord. Listen to it. What is, is the Lord speaking? Listen to it. Let it settle into your heart and your brain. Take serious consideration. Again, the idea is that the Spirit has gifted many people in the body to be able to communicate to the body what the Lord may be saying to the church. Uh, it also should be noted here, uh, maybe, maybe as a side note, it's really not a side note, it, how personal the Holy Spirit is. He, he's, and, and I love this again because, and, and I want to just keep mentioning this, Christianity is not a, is not a religion of empty ritual. It's an active engagement with the living God. And, and the Holy Spirit is the spirit that indwells the person that comes to Jesus and says, I need you as my Savior, as my Lord. I can't do this on my own. Indwells the, indwells the believer. And what's interesting is he relationally responds to our response or lack thereof to his, to his work in our life. It's a relationship. Are we cooperating with him? Are we walking with him? Are we listening to him? He relationally responds to our response or lack thereof. That's true on a personal level, and that's even true on a corporate level. The expectation is that, G, that, that the Spirit of God would be burning amongst us that he would be illuminating amongst us a fire, a light. But where there's willful disobedience, um, where we stiff-arm him, where we refuse to do what was taught about last week, being uh, those who rejoice, those who are prayerful, those who are grateful, when we look to quelch the, the moving of the Holy Spirit amongst our body, in those ways, the spirit who is relational can be grieved, the Bible says, can be resisted, and here can be quenched, or at least the working can be quenched as if we're 
throwing water on a fire. And Paul cautions against this. On the flip side, Paul instructs against being naive and lacking discernment. So instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, none of that, no spirit-moving stuff, you know, instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, because of some potential abuses, he says, no, let the spirit move. But everything must be what? Tested. Everything must be tested. Now, this isn't encouraging cynicism. It's encouraging discernment. Everything must be tested. Listen to it. Weigh it carefully. The good, and the good in that, in that verse means genuine versus counterfeit. The good is to be clung on to. It's to be received and accepted. And anything that is a deception is to be avoided and discarded. So we could ask, how is prophecy to be tested? Now, the first test of any prophecy is whether it runs in confirmation or opposition to God's perfect, complete, sufficient word. So, so anything that's presented as a word from the Lord, I have a word from the Lord, I have a word from the Lord for the church, I have a word from the, from the Lord for you, anything that's presented that way that runs in conflict to what we know of God in his word, his attributes, his nature, his character, his message, what Jesus taught and exemplified, the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the perfect son of God, fully man, fully God, that he purposely laid his life down for your sin, and that on the third day he rose from the dead, right? And, and, that, and that salvation, receiving that message, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? So any word from the Lord that runs contrary to those things is to be rejected. We test all things against prophecy, capital P. This was a beautiful example set by a group of people called the Bereans. These are actually people that Paul went and visited right after he was in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And it says that the Bereans received the message with great eagerness. So they didn't say, hey, this is a new, this is a new word. What's going on? They received it with great eagerness. But what did they do? They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And for them, it was the Old Testament scriptures. We have the blessing to have the completion of God's word. So there needs to be a test with the scriptures, prophecy, capital P. There also has to be discernment of the message itself. Discernment of the message itself. And, and in 1 Corinthians 14.3, it says this, Everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Everyone who, everyone who prophesies speaks to the church for their, to men for their strengthening, encouraging, encouragement, and comfort. So there needs to be a, a test of the message itself. Does it edify? And that word edify means to strengthen or build up. Does it, does it edify or does it tear down? Now listen, edification sometimes comes with hard words, right? So it's not that all the words are easy to hear, but that it's in the end, it will be constructive rather than destructive. Does it bring life or does it bring death? Does it bring truth? Does it bring falsehood? Does it bring unity 
or does it bring disunity? Is it communicated in the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is it communicated in the fruit of the Spirit? So we need to test the message itself. And then thirdly, I'd say that there needs to be discernment of the messengers themselves. Or themselves. Sorry, I didn't get an A in English, so... Um, Jesus teaches us to distinguish false prophets by their what? By the what will you know them? By their fruit, right? By their fruit. He says in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 16, by their fruit you will recognize them. And what he's saying is look at their lives. Now, he's not calling for perfection, but is the trajectory of their lives matching up with what they're saying? We, 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 shouldn't be, we shouldn't be so dazzled by someone's oratory ability that we overlook their character, overlook their intent. Are they humble? Are they gentle? Are they sp- truly spiritually mature? And that doesn't just mean they can quote scripture. Are they spiritually mature? Are they trustworthy? Are they promoting peace and unity? Don't reject, don't be naive. May I suggest to you that this balance is too rarely struck in our churches? Um, it, it seems to me often there's either a rigidness toward allowing the spontaneous outworking of the Spirit, because you never know what might happen, right? Those spiritual people. So a lot of times there's a rigidness or there's a supposed openness to the Spirit, but but very little discernment and very little testing of just saying, is this really of the Spirit? And and I've experienced both, and a lot of you probably have too. And, And I believe as a church that we should be looking to live both in the freedom and the discernment that Paul is calling us to here. That there can be a beautiful balance of that. That we would be free in the spirit, but also have the discernment to say, ah, yes, that aligns with prophecy, capital P. Ah, yes, that's a message that's constructive. Ah, yes, that's not coming from someone who is living a life that doesn't match what they're saying. We should not quench the spirit kind of out of our own fear and control, say, well, I don't think God wants to speak to us today. It's such, a confu- it's, such a, it's such a convenient narrative. God doesn't want to speak to us today. God doesn't want to speak to me through other people in the church. But at the same time, we must realize what's sometimes presented as the gifts of the Spirit um, is, is neglectful, maybe sensationalized, sometimes outright strange, and doesn't fall in line with what we actually see in Scripture. I love the way the message puts this. It says, don't suppress the Spirit and don't stifle those who have a word from the Master. On the other hand, don't be gullible. Check out everything and keep only what's good. Throw out anything tainted with evil. Verses 23 and 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Here's a good one. The one who calls you is faithful. And what? He will do it. <laughs> That's good news. So Paul gives this prayerful blessing. And these aren't just kind of nice thoughts at the end of a letter kind of going, goodbye, be well. <laughs> Hardly. Paul's not into trite cliches. This is an active walk with the living God. Amen? That's what it's supposed to be. He describes God here as the God of peace. The God of wholeness. The God that, of harmony. The only place that I can find wholeness and harmony with God with brothers and sisters, even within myself. Inwardly and outwardly. He prays for this ongoing work of sanctification that they would be found blameless upon the return of the Lord. And and that's just that God would be forming your character. The word sanctify means to make you holy. To be holy is to be literally to be set apart for God. That as he is holy, as he is other, we would be holy and other. That would be the trajectory of our lives. It's to be brought in line with the fact that we already have been justified before God, made right before God in Christ. That our lives would walk in the rhythms of that justification. God doesn't want you to stay where you're at. Do you realize that? God doesn't, you might be like, well, I'm 30, I'm 40, I'm 50, I'm 60. I, you know, I don't know. No, no, no. God does not want you to stay where you're at. God's always got growth, right, for you to do. He wants to develop you and continue to develop you. If you're in the same place you were at five years ago, two years ago, one year ago, Spirit, are you working? Am I cooperating? This process of being made holy is to impact us through and through, Paul says. Every area of our life, the eternal, the personal, the physical. Through and through. I can't give God my Sundays, but not my Mondays. Right? Like, you got Sunday, God, but I'm not sure about Tuesday. I can't give God my public time, but not my private time. I can't give God my worship, but not my finances. Right? We, we do the, God wants to redeem all of it. I can't give God my words, but not my thought life. I can't give God, uh, uh, rejoice with God just in the good, but not in the bad. He wants to develop you. How is this possible? Verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. It doesn't get much more encouraging than that. It assumes that God is our faithful companion. And that he is the agent of change. A man named Donald Jewell says, The life of faith is not striving for more. It is living more fully in what has already been given. Listen to that again. The life of faith is not striving for more. It is living more fully in what has already been given. He continues, knowing that even efforts to live more appropriately as saints 
depends upon God, the God who sanctifies. Now, we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God. We don't just lay there and say, God says, okay. No, Lord, where are, you, where are you leading? Where do I need to go? How do I need to respond? What do you need to chisel away? What are you developing? How do I cooperate? How do I obey? But listen, that work of being made holy doesn't originate in you. It doesn't naturally develop in you. Leon Morris says, The power manifest in the sanctified life is not human but divine. It's the work of God. But what's beautiful is God knows what he's doing and he is ever faithful. He will see the work through. Man, I just... He will see the work through. I doubt that a lot in myself, right? I'm like, oh, Lord, here I am again. Really? And you doubt that a lot. I know it because <laughs> you're not that much like, uh, different than me, right? But the word of God says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And it tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 5 that we will be presented in Christ, to Christ, as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Why? Because the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. It's a good word. These last couple verses here. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It was customary for Paul um, to dictate his letters, but as he got to the end of the letter, he often would take the pen in his own hand. Some people think that his eyesight might have been failing. Again, that's a little bit of guesswork, um, but it seems like this is probably the case here, at least, at least starting at verse 27, as he gives this kind of meaningful and motivating goodbye and I love that Paul asked for prayer. Paul asked for prayer. How many, how many of you are like, you need prayer, you need prayer, you need prayer, you need prayer. Do I need prayer? No, I'm good. I know you need prayer. Do I need prayer? Nah. I'm like, Paul, an apostle of God, writing the scripture of God, isn't afraid to turn to everyday saints and say, I need your prayer. I need you to pray for me. Then he calls all the brothers to be greeted with a holy kiss. This, this isn't to a verse that uh, justifies kind of creepy church. Um, <laughs> this, this was a typical greeting uh, in their culture, a kiss on the cheek. Um, I grew up, and a, a part, of my, part of my family is very Italian. That would have been very typical, hugs and kisses. Or even the church I grew up in, Jersey, that was very typical. But that varies, right, from... from culture to culture. The idea is that there should be a warm reception for all in the church, not a select few. Um, that might be a hug, that might be a handshake, that might be a fist bump, that might be a, a, just a, a warm welcome with eye contact and a smile. Uh, they're always, when it comes to physical affection, 
I think there's always some caution. It's not that we shouldn't appro give appropriate affection, but you know, make sure that it's thoughtful, make sure that it's above reproach, uh, make sure that it's uh, mutually consensual. In other words, don't touch people that don't want to be touched, right? But the idea is that there would be a pure, holy, right? He calls it a holy kiss, pure, an appropriate display of welcome and inclusion. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. That it wouldn't be like, hey, I'll say hello to Luke, but I don't want to say, I don't want to greet uh, that person scares me. I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a little at odds with him or her, so I can sit on this side of the church. No. Keep working through that. Keep shaking hands. Don't let it be fake. Look the person in the eye. Care. Break down those bar barriers. Greet each one warmly, inclusively. And then Paul gives a charge. It's actually very strong wording. It's a call to an oath that this letter be read to everyone. It's not just a personal letter. It's prophecy, capital P, direct, inspired, perfect word of God. It needs to be heard and heeded by the whole church. We need to continue to hear and heed the word of God. Not just parts of it and pieces of it, the parts we like, but all of it to everyone. And what a blessing that Paul says, make sure everybody hears it. And here we are 2,000 years later, oceans apart in time and space and culture, and we're hearing the same word. Doesn't that show God's faithfulness? And then Paul's very last words come by way of benediction. He ends his letter as it began with a blessing of grace. May grace always be with you. Swim in it. Grace is the heart of the gospel that God has this unmerited favor and kindness that's been granted to you if you'd only receive it in Christ Jesus. It's the heart of the gospel. It should be the heart of everything we do. Well, you guys talk about grace a lot. Of course we do. Because it's the heart of God. It's the heart of salvation. It's the heart of my everyday walk with him. It's the heart of sanctification. Grace. That God has chosen out of his character to love and bestow salvation on me and be faithful to me always. His favor, his kindness, undeserved. John Stott says, if a, local if a local church is to become a gospel church, it must not only receive the gospel and pass it on, but also embody it in a community life of mutual love. And then he ends, he says, but nothing but the grace of Christ can accomplish this. So the life of the church is supposed to be the opposite, the complete opposite of stale lifeless religion and ritual. Empty traditions. It's an ongoing, active engagement with the God who has loved me and his grace within Christian community. That we would continue to hear from God and see the spirit move and not quench him. Even hear from God through others in the church. 
that we continue to experience and sing about his faithfulness. That he never gives up on us. That he will change us through and through. He will do it. Until we finally see him. Amen? Until we finally see him face to face. Let's pray. So, Lord, we just ask that you continue to do what we can't do for ourselves. That we would obey, that we would yield, that we would surrender, that we would cooperate. But that you manifest in us what we could not do for ourselves. That you would change us in every way, in all ways, in Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that as others see that change, they see you. That we would love, that we would live and swim in your grace. That we'd be a people of your grace, reflecting how this faithful God has been so, so good to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.